2024 for the other IPOs. So it was well um, overvalued in a sense, and it hasn't been profitable for eight years. So, mm. uh, and the outlook towards profitability is a challenge at a time when they're where, where they're up against some big competitors. So I think people just looked at the stock and said, look, it just doesn't represent the right value. And I think that's probably why you know the stock is now 26 below, 26% below its IPO level, and unlikely to recover in a hurry. Mm. But it dragged down the whole Indian market yesterday, didn't it? I think uh, the Sensex was down, what, about 1% or something? Yeah, and, and look, it, it, it certainly, again, reflects, you know, gets good headlines, right? Uh, because, you know, everyone's looking at Indian IPOs, anyone's looking at Indian valuations, and they're very, very high and very frothy. Um, but I think the specifics around this particular IPO are there to suggest there were plenty of red flags that would uh, have identified it not as a, as a quality IPO or a quality listing versus some of the others. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it as a broader um, example of appetite. Having said that, I think what you'll see now investors in India looking at um, the dynamics and the specifics around particular IPOs versus just looking at India as a broad index and saying, you know, they want to own it. Um, I still think there's a lot of appetite clearly for Indian stocks, but I think the lesson out of this one is to, is to do your homework. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Love to talk about this a bit more, but thanks very much, Toby. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets this week. Uh, first of all, in Australia, the SX200 up 0.2%, the Nikkei 225 in Japan up a third of a percent. Sadly, though, the Hang Seng is set for a fall of about 320 points at the open. That's about one and a quarter percent. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil slipping a little. Uh, it's down at $81.08 a barrel and gold is at $1,860 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning, but stay tuned to Radio 3. Back chat's coming up in just a moment with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast for today, sunny periods, maximum temperature about 26 degrees and it's going to be warm over the weekend. Uh, the temperature right now is 23 degrees, 80% relative humidity. 8.32, here's Todd Harding with the half-hour news. The police say they've arrested a 58-year-old bus driver after a passenger died when a KMB bus flipped onto its side in Taiwan last night. Eleven passengers were injured in the accident near the junction of Taipo Road and Chingsa Highway, two of whom are said to be in a serious condition. A 38-year-old man was declared dead at the scene with severe head injuries. Superintendent Lam Chun said it appears the driver had found himself in the wrong lane before the accident happened at 11pm. When the bus reached the scene of the accident, we suspect that the bus driver went the wrong way and drove onto the road divider in the middle of the road, which flipped it onto its left side. We have arrested the driver on suspicion of dangerous driving causing death. The government has described as unacceptable the behaviour of three Cathay Pacific cargo pilots who lost their jobs after flouting anti-Covid precautions during a layover in Germany. Violet Wong has details. The Transport and Housing Bureau said in a statement that it was deeply regretful at the failure of the pilots to follow the so-called closed-loop system, under which crew overseas must travel directly to hotels and stay in their rooms. Citing the severity of the incident, the Bureau said it had instructed Cathay to take action and noted that the airline had already taken several measures. The pilots tested positive for COVID-19 after a trip to Frankfurt. Earlier, Cathay said it had found what it described as a serious breach of overseas layover requirements. 
The company didn't elaborate, but confirmed that the three no longer worked for the airline. The infections prompted authorities to order about 130 crew into quarantine. Cathay says it asked officials to review that decision. Food panda couriers who joined a strike at the weekend say they reached an agreement with management to settle their differences. Speaking after seven hours of talks, which ended late last night, worker representatives said the company had offered a very good package. Pedro Diaz, the company's operations director in Hong Kong, pledged to improve communications with workers. I recognize that several of the issues that were discussed stemmed from an initial miscommunication between us and our fleet. So this is something that I will be putting a lot of effort into solving in the near future. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Janice Wong and your co-host today is Andrew Work. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Janice Wong. Great to finish the week with you. Yes. Today we're talking about wild pigs and the Hong Kong cyclothon. Government officials captured and later put down seven wild boars on Wednesday evening, in line with a change of policy on controlling the animals in urban areas. Officers from the Agriculture, Fisheries and Conservation Department were seen using bread to lure wild boars out of the woods in Aberdeen. The operation drew criticism from animal welfare groups, but the government said the tactic was adopted to make sure everyone was safe. So what do you think? What's the most effective way to manage the wild pig population? After 9.15am, we'll look at the return of the Hong Kong Cyclothon, which is set to take place on January the 16th. Let us know your thoughts. You can can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or why don't you just give us a call on 233-88266. That's 233-88266 and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line Ronnie Wong, a member of the Hong Kong Wild Boar Concern Group. Jeremy Young, a Central and Western District Councillor, and Professor Nikolaus Osterreiter, the Dean of the Jockey Club College of Veterinary Medicine and Life Sciences. Good morning and welcome to all of you. Yes, sir. good morning, everyone. Um, good let's, morning. Uh, maybe let's start with uh, you, Mr. Wong. You were actually at the scene of the operation on Wednesday evening. Can you briefly tell us uh, what you saw? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, well, uh, when I reach uh, uh, the driveway uh, in the uh, in the South uh, Island, South Hong Kong Island, uh, I saw the AFCD staff was uh, pacing the back on the middle of the driveway. As I could see, uh, the back uh, due to this incident, uh, they go down to the driveway and uh, take the foot. When they are taking the foot, the, uh, the AFCD are trying to recognize them and uh, trying to uh, influence the uh, Wild pig. This is definitely unacceptable because uh, uh, they are they are the government. They are the government doing. I can't imagine they could set a trap. This is a trap to uh, kill the animal. This behavior is uh, totally unacceptable. It is inhuman. It is uh, uncivilized and it is bloody. Uh, this is a great. Uh, this is a great decreasing of the civilization of the. Uh, Government because since uh, 2017 they have conducted the uh, contraceptive measures of the wild boars 
which everyone, including our uh, animal protection group, was uh, uh, was uh, supporting was supporting it. Uh, was a, a successful program. However, due to the incident uh, between the, the conflicts of the uh, policemen and uh, wild boars a few days ago, they have greatly changed these uh, measures. I mean, it wasn't just the police uh, person. That was, you had the Coco Wong, was it her mother or grandmother? They had to have six hours of mother. surgery. For, it was her mother for her shattered hip. I mean, there's been a, there's been a few high-profile cases of uh, incidents. The police, the you know, the policeman getting bitten wasn't the only incident. I mean, there was also the case of Coco Wong's mother, who had to have six hours of hip surgery. Uh, and, you know, we do live in a city that's being more and more populated by frail elderly people that are kind of afraid of everything, whether it's vaccines or pigs. Um, you know, is, is, was this bound to happen sooner or later? We would have a spate of high-profile incidents, and people would be like, listen, we can't mess around anymore. Kill some yes, uh, Oh, yes. Uh, I think, uh, I, I hope everyone understands that the wobble uh, would not attack people unless they affected them. So, uh, uh, in the contrast, uh, we are thinking that the wobble's uh, habitat uh, was uh, invaded by the human beings. So, there's a lot of uh, measure to uh, deal with the issue uh, before taking infinite the, uh, the wild pig. Uh, because uh, we could increase the resources uh, for the government uh, to educate, uh, the, uh, the government could also increase the resources to uh, hold it, uh, push, push the program of the uh, contraceptive or the insecting uh, program to the wild bowl as this program. Remember, everyone, uh, this is the uh, worldwide uh, first uh, city of Hong Kong to taking this program. So uh, everyone was supporting, but they just uh, uh, get back to the way to having killed the animals. Uh, I think that, uh, for the public, uh, don't afraid the wild bulls, just to give them the freedom, just uh, spend that. Uh, uh, just spare the, the, the space for them to live in the city. All right, yeah. uh, let's let's now bring in uh, Central and Western District Councillor Jeremy Young. Good I remember. Morning. Good morning. I remember you did call for tougher measures to control the wild boar population in the past. Um, was Wednesday's capture and kill tactic uh, what you wanted to see? Yeah, I think it is a step too late, um, unnecessary, uh, quite unfortunate, but uh, it was something that had to be done given the lack of actions in the last three to four years by the government, uh, various departments. Uh, let's put things into perspective here. Um, so since the government stopped any putting down of wild boars in 2017, there has been a steady increase in incidents where humans are being attacked by wild boars. Um, there has been an increasing number of people feeding wild boars, which is a very bad thing to do. And, and, and the government's latest estimation of the wild boar population in Hong Kong is about 2,500, okay? So 2,500, most of them are living very happily and naturally in wild country parks, which is how it should be. Uh, people talk about cohabita uh, cohabitation with wild boars in Hong Kong, yes, but not along McDonough Road, not in the MTR station, not along the South Horizon residential areas. So the government in the past four years have adopted a a new approach of um, capture, nurture, and relocate. Uh, that hasn't worked. We've saw the numbers. It's low. 
and the pigs, they have very keen sense of smell and very strong memories. So once they have been fed, and, and to be honest, uh, wild animals, uh, animals, uh, you know, would always go for the easiest route to food, uh, no matter what type of food they are. So once they're used to being fed, they come back. And, and to, be, to be honest as well, a lot of residents somehow uh, find it interesting or, or they, they think they're doing the wild pigs a favor. They're not. They're killing them slowly by feeding them human food. And so we are now faced with an imbalanced population of an increasing number of wild boars venturing into the residential area. That's the reason why the government had to act quickly to put down those wild pigs that are repeatedly venturing into residential areas. That is totally separate from thousands of wild pigs foraging in the wild. So uh, let's just put the whole thing into perspective. It is not nice to put down any animals, but I think come to this time when increasing number of people are being attacked, uh, I think it is a step that we must take. All right, just before we continue with our discussion, I need to point out that we did try to invite the assistant director of the AFCD, Simon Chan, to back chat this morning. Um, but, but unfortunately, he was unable to attend. Uh, but his department did, however, provide us with a statement. And uh, it's quite long. I'll just read out a part of it. Um, it says, uh, wild pigs are not pets, but potentially dangerous large animals. In response to increasing nuisance of wild pigs, Wild pigs in the urban area will be regularly captured for humane dispatch with a view to reducing their numbers and a nuisance. The AFCD will also explore amending the Wild Animals Protection Ordinance to expand the feeding ban area for wild animals in order to strengthen the curbing of intentional feeding activities. Um, Mr. Wong, what's your response to that? I mean, I know um, uh, you've been criticizing or your group and several other animal welfare organizations have been criticizing the AFCD's uh, action. What's your response to uh, um, their statement? Yes, uh, I According to the AFCD figures, uh, for the past 10 years, they say uh, around 36 uh, numbers of the case uh, that wild bulls was so-called attacking the people. Uh, however, the public was not aware of the reason why they so-called attacked the people. Uh, maybe the people was uh, doing some threatened behavior to the wild bulls or the wild bull was get hurt. They are... They, 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 they feel worried and protect themselves. But this case, they record the animal attacking them. This is unfair, unfair speaking, first of all. Uh, for the past 10 years, there's only 36 of numbers of the wild bulls, but we are admitting, we are, we, we are admitting that uh, the, uh, the, the opportunity of the conflict between the wild bulls and, and, and humans was increasing. But we have to think about that. Only. 10 years, talking about this, uh, 36 numbers. When we are talking the traffic accident numbers, with 10 days, we're talking about 10, 30, even reached the 30, 37 cases. So, would the government ban the drivers to drive the car on the driveway? Will, will they pick up in helmet or body measures to the, to the driver? We do not, because uh, we have, uh, we, oh, this, we, we are intelligent, we have to think we have ways to deal with the uh, animal. We could use the peaceful, peaceful ways or increasing more resources to uh, educate people to, uh, to, to adopt the uh, uh, neutral so returns and relocation of the wild bulls. But the government didn't. Just, they just instantly, suddenly turned back to, 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 to kill the animals. That is uh, totally unacceptable. 
All right, uh, Mr. Wong, I know you have to go. Um, thank you once again for joining us this morning. That's Ronnie Wong from the Hong Kong Wild Boar Concern, Concern Group. There we go. And uh, Professor Ofsted, are you with us? Yes, I am. Good morning. Welcome to the good, show. Good morning. Good morning. Now, you, you are the dean of the Jockey Club College of Veterinary Medicine and Life yeah. Sciences at CityU. Why is the catch and neuter and release program not working? I wouldn't say it's not working. I mean, if you, if you look at, at the numbers in, in the past years, at least the numbers I have, there has been a constant increase uh, of the capture, a constant increase of administration of contraceptive vaccines, and a constant increase in, in surgical sterilization and relocation to the remote countryside. So I wouldn't necessarily say uh, this is not working. Um, it, 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 you know, this, this takes time. It, the, the, the explosion of or the, the growth of the population didn't happen overnight either. And it's a very complex um, uh, situation where, you know, feeding uh, breeds more uh, wild boar uh, that uh, reduces habitat. They follow, uh, as was pointed out, they're smart animals. They follow where they can, can get easy and good access to constant uh, feed. Um, so I, I think that the genie is a bit out of the bottle, and now we try to put it in. And, and uh, while the the getting out is probably uh, easier uh, than the getting back in. So I, I would not say at all that this is not working, but we need to be patient um, and we need to uh, be following the measures that have been implemented a few years ago, as was said before. Yeah, but I mean, you, you talk about being patient, but I mean, you know, I'm looking at situations in North America where, I mean, wild boars, they, they, they you know, came out of nowhere. Now, number in the millions, people organized nighttime hunting where they're in helicopters yeah. and, and yeah. you know, in, in pickup trucks with machine guns where they gun down thousands of them a night and they're spreading like wildfire. And I mean, picking up one or two, bringing them back to the lab, doing the sterilization, then relocating. Meanwhile, you know, the, the breeding is still happening out in, in the wild. Well, you know, why is the breeding happening and why is, I mean, the, the, the reasons are the same in the United States or Germany. I mean, there is no quote-unquote natural uh, predators of, of um, uh, wild boar. Uh, they have ample, ample feed. Uh, the, and one of the reasons also is that in North America and in Europe is, is the absence of infectious diseases that, uh, you know, kept uh, populations uh, under control. And as you pointed out, there is hunting in, in, other, in other parts of the world uh, as one of the many measures of population control. So I think population control, yes, needs to include um, sterilizations primarily, and I, I think they are not unsuccessful. Uh, I might add that, you know, vaccination uh, for sterilizing uh, wild boar is, is a first in Hong Kong. So I, I think this is all going in the right direction. We need uh, to be patient, I think, before these measures really take effect. And in the meantime, we need to stop the feeding, the illegal feeding in, in areas where we don't want to have wild boar. We should stop the feeding altogether. And then we need to uh, reinforce, uh, say, litter bins and, and so on. Uh, everything is, is in the AFCD uh, program. So I, I think, you know, it, it, it won't 
happen overnight, but but I think the trajectory is actually positive, and and to to get them out of uh, like central, for example, um, maybe one has to think about smart ways to keep them out, including fences uh, and otherwise. But we we must not forget. I mean, these are wild animals, and they are potentially dangerous. I mean, if if they are, they feel threatened, and we sometimes cannot say they are. Uh, they they will do what a wild animal does, trying to get out of the dangerous situation, which may include an attack. All right, Mr. Young,、uh, let's get back to you.、Um, can you let us?、Um, can you tell us a bit about what the situation is like in、uh, the central and western district? I, I know you do keep a、uh, community-based、uh, wild pig sighting database.、Uh, what does that show? Well, we've gone full circle.、Um, so the wild pigs、um, started to increase in numbers. After the government stopped any、uh, putting down,、uh, so we see piglets.、Uh, residents are happy; they're very cute. They like to feed them. They come back, and then they grow to be 250-pound giant animals. And people get scared. They make a mess. They, people stop going out at night. So the number of sightings has gone full circle, from increase to decrease. Not because of decrease in number of pigs in the residential area, but because of the increasing number of people not going out anymore in the fear of being attacked by these animals. And there are attacks happening, and the attacks are increasing. So, and what I was、um, saying, I don't mean to、uh, disagree with the effectiveness of the capture, nurture, relocate.、Um, the, the number of capturing and relocating, yes, it has increased, but the population of wild animals foraging in residential area that has increased even more. So, comparing the two, that's what I call ineffective, and that's why the government has to step in and do a more drastic measure. Uh, despite sounding and, and looking very、uh, cruel at this, it is a balance between so wh- whose life is more important, human or wild pigs? That, and we're not going into country parks and shoot them. No, we're just stopping the increasing number of threatening visits on residential area. Now, what I urge the government to do is to give us monthly numbers on how many they have put down in these um, um, activities or I- initiatives. And if we find the number of sighting or threatening、uh, encounters have decreased back to an acceptable level, then we should stop this uh, uh, current uh, increase uh, uh, shooting of, of on, on site. Yeah, but on the flip on the flip side of all these very public cases, whether it was、uh, Coco Lee, yeah, thanks Donovan, thanks Jim for catching me on that,、um, and and the police. I mean, you know, I I get up with my boys. We do、uh, you know around ten kilometers a day before before going to work on the days I'm not on on back chat. And you know we hit Pickshan Path, which goes from the end of Conduit Road and Central out to around at the hospital. You know these pigs are every day; they're very regular. I swear to God, they have like alarm clocks that get up and hit the same place at exactly the same time. We used to see up to thirteen in one area on the way out,、uh, a couple of parents and a lot of little babies. And then there was on the way back, we'd always see the one big pig at the same place, same time, every day. Up until about a week ago, now that group of thirteen is down to three. <laughs> I think I know what happened to the other ten. I think they got them. But but I mean those kinds of interactions. There's piles of people with dogs up and down that path every day, but they don't make the front page of the newspaper. You know what I mean? If you count every one of those as an interaction, there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of those interactions with pigs every day that nobody ever hears about and nothing happens. Can, can I come in briefly? Sure, sure. So, sorry.、Um, so so I I think that the The key really is, and, and nothing will uh, pre- uh, prevent us from 
uh, or the, the key to, to the control is really population control. If you if you take these animals out and don't stop the, the new influx, uh, you have you wouldn't achieve much. So it has to be a very comprehensive approach because they will others if the ten are gone, there is nine more coming, and you can you can count on this. Mm. Uh, if the feeding continues, if the population control uh, isn't isn't followed, so so I I think one one should not uh, fool oneself saying you know we, we take we take ten out and and then we have solved a, a problem in this area. You need to then follow up, and that makes the task quite difficult. Uh, and and I I think that there has been there has been now a toolbox presented by AFCD, and I think the toolbox is, is absolutely right, and, and it needs to be implemented. And um, as we see this morning, you know, there is a controversy uh, around the issue, and, and I think uh, a, a measured and yet effective approach is, is not necessarily uh, contradicting one another. Uh, I, I do think that the population is at about um, between 1,800 and 3,300. It's, it's hard to say exactly. Uh, so we uh, one step after another and, and with time, and it will take time, it, there won't be a tomorrow solution uh, to the problem. In the meantime, these are wild animals. Pay attention, educate your neighbor, educate your friends, your family, and stop Mr. Young, I just want to get you to sort of clarify a point you made earlier. You said the capture and kill tactic being used by the government should be stopped when when numbers reach an acceptable level. What kind of level is that? How many? How many is okay? Well, I think if you just wind back the clock, back to the pre two thousand and seventeen, when wild pig sightings and um, in conflicts with human in residential areas has never been a real issue, so that, that, that would be my immediate uh, finger-in-the-air um, level of acceptability because back then, no one really complained. Uh, we, don't, we didn't see it as an issue. Um, and then in the past four years, uh, the whole situation has increasingly gotten out of hand. So I, I would just use that. Uh, don't overdo it. Uh, that's the key for the government. Is sometimes they, it takes a long time for them to decide on action, and then once they start acting, they don't stop. So this is our role as the councillors to monitor the effectiveness of government actions and then urge them to uh, take a step back and let things run its own course. So uh, your job is to monitor the government. It's also to kind of take the pulse of the community. You're, you've got an office there and a hotline that people call when they have issues. Have you been getting more calls about people saying, you know, uh, pigs are spreading garbage everywhere or oh, pigs scared me or uh, I really don't like what the government's doing. Uh, they should leave the pigs alone. What what is you know if you're if you're if you're keeping track of the calls that you're getting into your office, what are you hearing from the public? It's a very um, it's a very split opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of residents uh, see those pigs and they 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 get a very good experience from it. Um, as like yourself, I know that pig will appear here at about seven o'clock, yeah. um, and my family visits and and. And, and so on, but they don't interact with it. Others feel threatened. So I think it's not so much about the, the numbers of sightings. They have always been on the increase. Um, some residents have changed our own habits to cater for the increasing visits from these wild animals in, in not wild spaces. 
Um, but I, I just think that the society will never agree on whatever we are deciding to do now. There will be split opinions. The key is to bring a balance to the current uh, very unnatural behavior of wild animals in developed areas. That, that is the key. Do, do you get people calling to complain about other people feeding the pigs? Yes, but they can't do anything about it. Yeah. Because, uh, those feeding them are very adamant that they will continue to do so at all costs. Is it, is it a mental disorder like you know like we, we talk about crazy cat ladies that like have like they feed hundreds of stray cats everywhere and people can't you know compulsively feed pigeons except for you know these are bigger animals that they get a bigger kick out of it is there any potential for this is like a, a mental disorder that these people feel compelled because you know we see two on the trail and we call them a like everybody knows you're not supposed to do that crazy old ladies you know feeding the bags is is there something psychological to it I'm not, I, I'm not in a percentage comment, but I can share that a lot of people who are feeding those pigs, they are smart enough to not feed their own, the pigs in their own residential area. So they go to another place to feed. So the cost is borne. The cost is borne by other people, but the benefit or the kick is gained by the individual. So it's pretty selfish behavior, I would say. Yeah. P- Professor Osteretto, I know you're, you're with the, uh, the, the College of Veterinary Medicine. You study animals, but is, is there, you ever heard anything about this? Do people have a compulsion to feed? I, not not where I come from. I mean, we. I, I come. I come from Germany and Berlin. Uh, is is very similar where uh, wild boar are a real nuisance, and nobody would really uh, think about feeding them other than to lure them to a site where they can be hunted. Um, so so this is this is very unique. Professor Osterreiter, I'm a, Professor Osterreiter, I'm afraid we have to continue our discussion after the news summary because uh, the the news at nine is coming up. Um, we we can discuss this uh, in in more detail after the news. And uh, Mr. Young, thank you for joining us on the program this morning. And that's uh, Jeremy Young, a Central and Western District Councillor and uh, Professor Osterreiter. And uh, like I just mentioned, you'll be staying with us for a little longer so we can continue our discussion right after the news. And uh, don't forget, after 9.15, we'll be discussing the Hong Kong Cyclothon. And uh, a quick look at the weather right now. It's uh, sunny intervals with a top temperature of around 26 degrees. Right now it's 23 degrees. And the relative humidity is uh, 78%. Back. This is Back Chat on a Friday morning with Andrew Work and me, Janice Wong. Let's get back to our discussion on wild boars. Still on the line with us is Professor Nikolaus Osterreider, the Dean of the Jockey Club College of Veterinary Medicine and Life Sciences. And uh, remember, if you have any questions or comments on today's topics, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is backchat at rthk.hk. Our telephone number is 233-88266. And our Facebook page is Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. And uh, Professor Osterreiter, just before the news, you were talking about, or Andrew asked you about uh, whether there's a compulsive disorder with uh, people feeding wild boars. And uh, and you were saying? Well, I'm, look- I'm looking it up right now, and apparently there's, a, there's compulsive disorders where people will c- collect animals with, with the intention of taking care of them, but they're kind of mental, and so they end up, you know, collecting too many, and then they, they, they can't make decisions, and they, they kind of lose their minds, and the animals end up living in really, really horrible conditions. Um, but I don't see anything about specifically compulsive feeding, just just people have bad judgment around big animals. 
I, I think, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but, but there is certainly uh, an anthrop- anthropology uh, side to that, and, and research is going on in this area, you know, what, what makes people do this uh, behavior. But I'm coming more from, from uh, you, you may forgive me, from, from, from the animal side. And, and all I can say is, obviously, the problems that are there, and they're evidently there, are a function of population size. And population size, again, is, is uh, dependent upon pretty much the availability of feed. And, and, you know, again, feeding in, in areas uh, where, where they can get have easy, or have easy access to, to, um, to feed, um, not non-safe uh, litter bins uh, all make this happen. And they, as was t- said before, I mean, they do have a good memory. They are territorial. They wander. And they, they go to places where they are provided with what they need to live and to expand their population. So it needs to be a very comprehensive approach. Um, they are targeted on population size. When you talk about how smart they are, good memories, yes. intelligent, how conscious are they? I mean, a lot of people object to the cull of the pigs because they ascribe some kind of a higher level of consciousness to them. And, you know, as humans, we sort out our priorities of how we treat animals based on our appreciation of their level of consciousness. How, like, how smart are these pigs? Um, and Compared what is it? Compared to you and I? Or... <laughs> oh, you, mean, you mean the listening public. I mean, you know, are they, is, this, is this when people have a concern about the level of consciousness of an animal and killing it, um, where do pigs fit on that hierarchy? I, I, I you know, there, there, again, there, there's, there's research that, that, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not with wild boar, but, but with domestic pigs, where they, they try to uh, what we call enrichment, so, so they don't think uh, the wrong things, and you can train pigs to, to listen to their names and. For example, you know, Lisa, get up. Lisa, the pig, get up and get get your feet. So there's a, 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 a pen of, of pigs where one pig gets up, Lisa, and gets their feet. So they are they are quite, you know, you can train them really well. So that that would mean that they um, are quote unquote relatively smart and and. Uh, cognizant of, of their environment so so i but this is this is uh, beside the point in a way but makes it makes an important uh, or you bring up an important point you know wild boar if you if you look at at their level of of smartness i don't think they're any different from domestic pigs um, so when we when we still uh, say go to restaurants and and you know the, the meat that we or, or to the wet market and the meat that we uh, consume um, is coming some from somewhere um, uh, I heard Probably animals. from from a dead pig, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, I I think this, but this is more of a philosophical discussion. I mean, the the, the issue really is that wild boar are wild animals, and and we sh- even if we see them every morning at seven o'clock, you know, we must not. I, I mean. It's it's not that you how you greet your neighbor, right? It's uh, you you never know what what triggers them and or triggered them, and and this may not be dependent upon you. Um, they're wild animals. Mm. 
Mm. All right. Um, yeah. Also on the line with us now is uh, Neil Dunn, who was uh, part of the Sai Kung pig hunting team back in the 1990s. Wow. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Janice. Hi. Can, can you, can you uh, share your experience with us? What happened back then? Well, this was back in the late 1990s, a time when um, the world was very different. Um, I had to join the pig hunting team because they needed a police safety marshal. And in those days, it was a, uh, a group of the local gentry, and the dogs were many of the Manji village dogs. They would come out on the hunt. Um, the hunts were only conducted after we had complaints of damages to crops by villagers, and eventually then the golf courses also had damage, so we used to go and arrange hunts. Um, probably about 50% of the hunts were successful. Um, if I remember right, all the hunts that were sh- all the pigs that were shot on my hunt, it was one shot killed one pig. There was none left injured. Mm. Uh, and this surprised me. I mean, the local gentry, they could shoot. Um, but on the golf courses, we, we would go across, and it was uh, quite an exciting experience. One would drive the golf buggy, and the other one would be riding shotgun, and we'd drive around and try and chase the pigs away and shoot them. We did shoot one. We shot a, <coughs> a 400-pound ball was shot once. Oof. Um, that particular pig we ate in the Wan Chai restaurant. It was only later that I found out that uh, any boar shot should be handed over to AFCD. They would measure the boar and examine the stomach contents. I did this until about the year 2000, when I left Sai Kung Police Division. Um, at that time, I recommended that these hunting teams should stop. Um, the people were in the hills a lot more, a lot more walkers, a lot more different types of people were moving around Sai Kung, and I didn't think it was um, particularly suitable to continue shooting them. I recommended things like electric fences, and particularly now, as mentioned by some of your uh, other presenters, the pigs are very intelligent, and I know the golf courses now use electric fences to keep the, the pigs out. I think in 2014 they had a breach of their fence, and they called the hunters in to hunt the pigs. And that did cause some complaints from people back then. So I think, uh, for me, my, my point of view was the, um, the pigs deserve to, to live free like anybody else. Um, and we should try and use the electric fences more to interrupt their, their usual paths, stop them using their path, stop the feeding, and then they'll go back into the wild and they'll try and find their, their natural food. Um, as I say, back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, time was different. But I have to admit, I did enjoy it. It was exciting. Um, I'm not sure I should say that. There it was, sounds, that like, it sounds my, uh, exciting. <laughs> actually, it is. It's um, maybe it's a primeval thing that people have going out hunting. Hmm. Um, but as time went by, I, I, I did recognize the pigs were more intelligent. They're very family-orientated. And to be honest, if we can find other ways of preventing them causing the damage or preventing them of mixing in the urban environment and I think they should be examined first. I mean in overseas you have huge farms got electric fences to stop kangaroos or elephants from coming into the farms so I think that might be a, a, um, a better place to start. Do all the, the capture, the neutering electric fences and only the pigs that then escape capture them, relocate Maybe eventually you may have to shoot the occasional one. Professor Osterreiter, what do you think? Electric fences? Well, I mean, fences are, I mean, 
you know, I'm, I'm thinking immediately about uh, African swine fever and, and, and the outbreak that's currently going on in Europe, where some countries have put up fences to stop wild boar getting into their jurisdiction. So fences, uh, and I also, if since you mentioned golf courses, um, I, I used to live near a, near a golf course. I mean, the, this was, this was uh, you know, highly reinforced, not electrical fence, but real steel fence, going um, uh, quite a few um, inches uh, into the ground because, uh, as we uh, may know, the uh, pigs are pretty good diggers. Um, so, and, and they, they, you know, they try to get feed, of course. Um, so, I, I think again, there's a, there's a, there's a quite a toolbox of measures that we have to employ, all directed towards population control. And, and I think, you know, again, based on, you know, experiences in the, in, in the United States, Japan, Europe, you can, you can count many, um, the, the hunting can do, or, or the killing can do some, but certainly not all. It is uh, much more dependent on is there natural um, uh, enemies, uh, predators, is there diseases that take care of them, or is there some other um, sort of population control through sterilization, and be it by vaccination or by surgical uh, sterilization. So I think this is what I would focus on, and then trying to keep the current population out of areas um, by fences, by stopping the, the feeding, and by uh, securing um, um, trash bins. All right. So I have a few emails here. Let me just uh, read them out. This one is from Tom. It says, uh, Dear Backchat, the imbalance is in the perception of animal life versus human life. Why should perfectly healthy animals be put to death because of human failures? Do they not have as, as much right to life as we do? This, like the government's chopping down of trees, is just another example of policies that are not based on experts' recommendations, but rather just ill-considered knee-jerk reactions to incidents as they occur. That one is uh, from Tom. And then uh, this other email is uh, from James. It says, why did the contraceptive program not work? The administration has not explained. There are many uninhabited un islands where the boards could be relocated to. Or could they be turned into sausages? Seems cruel <coughs> to waste. And that one is from James. Oh, Professor Osterreiter, I, th I think we're going to tell that guy about pigs and swimming, aren't we? That would be one of the of the answers, and 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 really a good one. They they are usually not deterred by uh, you know some distance to to hike or to swim. They they can do both. Yeah, there was a video going around of one. It looked like it was swimming from Lama back to Hong Kong. Oh, man, yeah, those things I, can move. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're excellent. Yeah. yeah. Very, very good swimmers. Um, yeah, and I guess you know the the, the other email of the point about uh, you know if the where the fault lies. And I said that we see these two ladies that are always feeding the pigs, and you know this ginormous pig, and the woman feeds it, and then it starts to follow her, and she shoes it away, and then she turns around and gives it more food, and we're like, what is going on here? And we, you know, when that relationship goes bad, 
You know, it's not going to be like a boyfriend breakup, but I mean, when that relationship goes bad, you know, the pig is going to be the one to pay the but, price, but, not the old lady you, who's been feeding what it. What you observe is domestication in real time, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they, uh, wild animals, uh, if they realize they are treated well and they, they are then followers, they are cultural followers, and, you know, that, that relationship may either go sour, as you point out, or may develop into, into a very, you know, close relationship and, and result in a domesticated uh, or the, the, the start of another domestication line for pigs. So, um, it, again, you know, they, but for, for all intents and purposes now, these are wild animals and they should be treated as such. And that really includes do not feed them yeah. um, uh, under no circumstances. Yeah. And uh, Professor Osterreiter, I, I know in the first part of our discussion before the new summary, we talked about uh, the new capture and kill tactic that authorities are now using on wild boars. We also discussed other possible ways to better control the problem, such as introducing tougher penalties for people who feed wild boars. But um, does, does all this come too late? I mean, uh, the wild boars are already used to people feeding them or going out to urban areas to find food. Can any of the measures actually change their behavior now? It, I, you know, it, it is difficult, but it's not a, a, a problem of yesterday or the day, day before yesterday. It's, it's an ongoing problem. I mean, we just heard uh, that it, this was an, an issue uh, many, many years ago. So, so I, I think um, you, 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 you must, you know, if you want to, if you have identified a problem, you must start working at the problem. And, and uh, AFCD has started to identify the problem, has been working at the problem. And, and I, you know, if I, if I see the, the numbers, I, I cannot really say it's ineffective. Um, but, uh, you know, we need to follow on that path because I think this is the only path we have, population control and stopping um, uh, the feeding. Maybe do it, uh, you know, not abruptly because, uh, as somebody pointed out, that may uh, result in, in even more aggressive or could result in even more aggressive behavior. So, so uh, we need to understand that we will not solve this problem tomorrow. This will be um, an, a perennial, uh, I, I think, uh, issue. Um, again, looking at other jurisdictions that have worked or have had the same problem. Um, for decades. Yeah, I think, I think you know, throw everything you got at it, whether it's contraceptives, electric fences, because, I mean, if people want to see how crazy this can get, go Google or get on YouTube and look for uh, Texas nighttime wild boar hunting. And it is, you know, and, they, and then, you know, start to look at the numbers of how quickly these things spread uh, when they've got a large area to do so and, and, and a lot of food. It's a... Yeah. But, but also the, the United States, uh, if I might say that, is, is kind of homemade, where feral pigs uh, many years ago were trucked around the country for hunting purposes, right? And then yeah, yeah. the population got out of hand. So, so you know, we, we, we have, we humans uh, have generated the problem. Um, and now we are there to solve the problem that we ourselves have generated. And that's probably... Uh, also a story that repeats itself. Uh, it's human nature to generate problems and then trying to solve them. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, recently the government ha has talked about uh, maybe bringing, maybe considering bringing back uh, civilian hunting over wild boars. Um, Neil Dunn, are you still there? Is that something you're, you're, you'll be against? 
Yes, I don't think there should be people running around with shotguns in the country parks these days. Um, especially now more and more people are using the country parks for their leisure activities. So I think um, the safest one is to, if you're going to tell the pigs, is maybe to do what they do at the moment, is you tranquilize the pig first, and then you take it away and as humanely as possible um, deal with the pig that way. Or maybe get a farm to put them on a farm and um, use the contraception. But I don't think people in country parks with shotguns is a, a suitable method of, of dealing with pigs, just for safety reasons. All right, uh, Professor Osterreiter and uh, Neil, we'll have to leave it there for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. Um, that's Professor Nicholas Osterreiter from the City University um, and also Neil Dunn, a member of the Saikung pig hunting team in back in the 1990s. Um, it's now 20 minutes past nine and it's time to turn to our second and final topic today and that is the Hong Kong Cyclothon, which is making a comeback in January following a two-year hiatus. Cycling enthusiasts who take part in the event will get a chance to ride on the 12-kilometre-long Hong Kong-Juhai-Macau Bridge Link Road for the first time. And registration for the event will open tomorrow. To comment on the Cyclothon's return, we're joined in our Admiralty studio by cyclist James Ockenden, who is the founder and editor of Transit Jam and producer of radio show Wham Bam Tram. Good morning, James. Hello, everyone. Hey. Well, welcome to the programme. So how popular do you think the Cyclothon will be? I think it will be sold out. Uh, there's a there's going to be a ballot for this. Um, it's a real shame that uh, you have to have participated before uh, in order to take part. So you, you, unless you've done the 2015, 16, 17, 18 uh, event and actually finished that event, then you can't enter. Uh, I think that's a shame. I think that's obviously for COVID reasons. I think they can't do the time trial and the technical test uh, this year because it would be way too complicated to handle that under the COVID restrictions. What, what is this? For? I have to admit, like, I'm vaguely aware that there were bike races in Hong Kong, but what is the cyclothon? What is this thing? Oh, this is this is a, a, a race put on. It used to be put on every year. Uh, it's one of the sort of I guess it's one of the sort of amateur cycle races that anyone in theory can enter. And it's a 35 kilometer course uh, with also a sort of 14, I think, 14 kilometer uh, fun course. Um, and it attracts, you know, several thousand riders and people who don't have uh, road bikes could, as I recall, actually rent bikes for that event. So it was pretty, uh, pretty interesting event for opening up the idea of sport, uh, sport cycling. Uh, to to the masses. So it's got a, it's got a it's got a very competitive component, and then kind of a particip anybody can participate component to it. Yeah, I'd put it in line with the the New World uh, the Harbour race. In fact, you know where you get sort of people coming from uh, coming to compete, and then you've also got amateur swimmers like myself sort of struggling across the harbour. So yeah, so for nobody and, drowns. That's right. And so so for both of those things, they have tests to make sure that the people are of a certain standard. So they had the time trial for the uh, for the uh, swimming, and they also have time trial and. A technical test for the cyclothon. You need to be able to turn around a corner very fast without falling off. They test that. And, and, and what do you think of the route this year? I mean, uh, is it just going to be one straight path? Yeah, the route. The route's interesting. It's one of these because it it will be. I mean, that's the iconic part of the bridge. Perhaps you know, perhaps it would be a lot of fun to cycle on that. Uh, I think that would be the appeal. I would definitely love to cycle on that. I would. I would join this if I had joined in the past. Um, the route. It's sort of back and forward, so it's two laps of this rather long straight road. 
Um, I think these bridges, I've, you know, I've done the London, uh, sorry, the, the Hong Kong Marathon a few times, and the bridges, they look spectacular from a distance. But when you're actually on it, sort of plodding along this uh, four or five lane road, you can lose that sort of majesty a bit. So, uh, How, how yeah. high are the barriers on the side? Can you even see over the edge? Uh, you can't really see over the edge, but you can see in the middle uh, on the marathon, you can sort of see down, you, you can see down the sea and it's a long way down. It's... Uh, it's actually quite frightening if you're a little bit scared of heights. And how does it compare to previous routes? Um, I can't, honestly, I, I, I don't know. I, I know there was a route which was a bit more, um, I believe was around, uh, I saw it going through Jordan, uh, Austin, Austin Road around that area. So it was a bit more urban uh, before. And I think they had uh, probably less, less challenges in organising it than they've had this year. But they have tried to do something new, which is this Hong Kong uh, Macau Zhuhai Bridge. So that, that's great to see. Okay, you said you said seven thousand people this year. No, no, no. I think it's capped at uh, I think three thousand. You better check that. Yeah. Yeah, three thousand. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, so that that's a group of people. I mean, it's it's uh, in numbers. It's not right up there with the marathon or. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And uh, now this one's going ahead. Uh, the swimming is going ahead, uh, but other other sports events have not. And is is this because the audience or the sorry the participation for this one is primarily domestic? Is it just people in Hong Kong that are that are participating in this? Yeah, I think it's partly that. I mean, I think there was international uh, interest before, but uh, it's also it's uh, I think it's quite manageable. So I think they've put together a plan, a COVID plan. If you look at Trailwalker, uh, which obviously didn't get its permission to go, yeah, uh, I was chatting to some people about this. One one source told me he thought Trailwalker had basically been too greedy and had asked for you know forty eight hours and food and drinks and things like that. Yeah. which the government just found too hard to deliver. Uh, whereas I think the, some of the trail races I've done, they've been you know, basically no water or very, very uh, complicated water requirements, uh, no food allowed even on a, you know, quite a tough trail course. So I think, they, I think events will go ahead if they can stay quite small and manageable and don't have this food element. Hmm, okay. Uh, and so is, is there prize money on the line here, like on the competitive part of this? It's, you know, I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that would attract international attention from super competitive riders. Uh, but is, are people going to win actual cash prizes? Um, I, don't, I don't know about that. I was on the website last night trying to sign up, and, uh, which you can sign up from tomorrow, and I didn't see anything about prizes. Um, I, I just found that this, uh, this requirement that you needed to have done it before, which, uh, you know, which I was quite sad about. I'll be trying, on, trying tomorrow to see if there's any loopholes to that, but... Uh, yeah. Oh, they don't have a standby lineup? Uh, that's right. That's what I'm hoping. You know, perhaps if they don't get the numbers they're hoping for uh, or for the ballot, then they might open it up a bit further. So I think it's worth, uh, I'm definitely going to apply or somehow anyway. Yes. Gotcha. And what's, what's corporate sponsorship for this thing look like uh, compared to other events? Yeah, I think it's been always backed by Sun Kai. And uh, I think, you know, these events have these big title sponsors, which tend to stick with them over, over many years. So uh, it's definitely got the support. I mean, the, the hope is obviously that the, you know, we see, I saw Carrie Lam at the Velodrome, you know, recently. Mm. And I was screaming at the radio and it's like, Carrie, get on the bike, you know, because she looks at the velodrome and she looks at the, the, the track cyclists. And there's such a disconnect between that and then the way the government treats cycling in general. And I think, you know, to actually get on a bicycle and, and feel that and, and see how easy it is to get around, you know, perhaps some of the leaders could take note from the sports cycling and bring it perhaps a bit back into the city. Like, I know you're a cyclist, but I mean, for a lot of people in Hong Kong, cycling is just not a part of their life. Like, I don't think like, I've been here 25 years. I don't think I've ever been on a bicycle in Hong Kong. I think, you know, my kids have done it maybe once or twice because they're Hong Kong Island kids and yeah. not, you know, not new territories or island kids where I think they do cycle a bit more. Yeah. But I mean, it's kind of 
weird, isn't it? How little people in Hong Kong cycle. It's not weird. It's entirely predictable because the government's policy, which it's had for decades, is cycling is not suitable for urban areas, or rather urban areas are not suitable for cycling. And so when you've got a government saying that, rather than, hey, cycling is a great way to decarbonise, to reduce congestion, it's, he- it's healthy, it's fun. You know, if the government says that, and how can we make it safer? How can we make the urban areas more uh, open to cycling? Then you've got a chance to actually raise cycling as something that people might want to do. Yeah, because I think it was my primary form of transportation, you know, my mum driving me around everywhere, but it was my primary form of transportation up until, you know, probably the age of 12 or 13. Yeah, when you know, but I mean, here, most yeah. do like, do most kids ever learn? Do, do they never learn how to cycle? Here? I, th- I see a lot of kids learning at the, at the little bike parks that they have, um, but they're renting bikes. They don't have their own bikes. And of course, so they don't, you can't cycle from your house in many cases, especially, you know, where we live. So they go and rent a bike and do this little track and maybe learn how the physics of how to actually balance on the thing. Mm-hmm. But they're not really, like you and I, presumably, you know, it was a form of transport for us yeah. as kids. You know, you yeah. just keep up in a pack. It was a great way to get around. Yeah. And I mean, for here, it's more like parents. It's like, oh, what are we going to do with the kids today? It's like, oh, we haven't, we haven't tried biking yet. I guess we yeah. can try that for a day. And I saw them. I tried to cycle to M Plus at the weekend. And, and it's just horrendous cycling there. You can't get there. And when I got there, there were people with bikes, renting bikes. But they had driven to M Plus, parked in the big car park there, and then taken off on these little rental bikes to go around. So, you know, I wouldn't say that's great to see people trying out bikes, but it's not really integrated cycling into the community. Yeah. And on the ocean side of M Plus, they do have a big open space where they could put some bike racks, I assume. Uh, there's no bike racks at M Plus that I found. There is, there is rental bikes, but I tried to park my bike. I couldn't find anywhere to park the thing. I even went into the car park. And, you know, there's no EV spaces and then there's no bicycle spaces there. So we're a bit off topic, but, you know, I think that's very interesting. We're talking about decarbonizing transport. We need bike racks at the brand new museum. And yeah. there's no excuse for not having that. It's been, you know, how long has that been empty land reclaimed from the sea? There's sure. not, they can't say there's no space there. Oh, there's space there. I've been, I've been there. Yeah. There's definitely space. Yeah. I mean, but, of course, this, this whole idea of bicycles at the grass and learning as kids feeds into whether or not we have an adult riding population that could participate in the cyclothon. Yeah, and in the UK, so they actually tap the general cycling population to take part, to try and get them into the clubs and then into the sport. And that feeds like an Olympic pipeline. Uh, And then Olympic success further breeds, you know, uh, the general population being interested in bikes. So there's a connection there in the UK. They really manage it. Whereas in Hong Kong, Carrie Lam at the Velodrome is completely separate from transport department talking about cycling. Mm. All right. I just just finally let's uh, get back to the Hong Kong cyclothon for a moment. Um, the the tourism board uh, he said uh, it said that in future they may extend the cyclothon uh, route to the Greater Bay Area. I mean, what's what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that would be great. There's some wonderful tracks. In fact, Greater Bay Area has a lot better cycling than Hong Kong. I don't know why we keep talking about integrating with Greater Bay Area. Why are we not learning from the good stuff? You know, why are we not learning from Shenzhen and the Greater Bay Area cycle tracks? That would be uh, a wonderful thing. I'm from, I'm, I went to high school in Vancouver, and every time I go back now, all the buses have bike racks on the front yeah. of the bus for multimodal transportation. Love that. So you could get across the harbour. Because to go to M Plus for mid-levels cost me $40.4 return. And that's crazy. It's almost like as much as a taxi, because I had to pay for the ferry. If I could stick it on the front of a bus for free, I could cross the harbour at least, and that would you know, really leave one of the bottlenecks for bicycles. Mm-hmm. All right, James, we'll have to leave it there for now. Um, thank you very much for joining us this morning. That's uh, cyclist James Ockenden, who is the founder and editor of Transit Jam and producer of radio show Wham Bam Tram. Also, many thanks to all of you who commented through email and a thank you, Andrew, for being such a wonderful co-host. Thanks for having me, Janice. And, uh, of course, Yuki, our producer as well. And that's it for this week and uh, we'll be back 
at 8.30 on Monday. And uh, now here's the weather. Sunny intervals with a top temperature of around 26 degrees, winds moderate east to northeasterlies, and the outlook warm over the weekend, becoming appreciably cooler though early next week. Right now it's 23 degrees, relative humidity 78%. The Smart ID Card Replacement Exercise is for me and for you. If you hold the old form of Smart ID Card and were born in 1980 to 1982, you must replace your ID Card from November 19th, 2021 to January 18th, 2022. You may bring two family members or friends aged 65 or above and two persons with disabilities to replace ID Cards together. Let's build a caring and inclusive society. Remember to book ahead. It's 9.31, the news with Todd Harding. The police say they've arrested a 58-year-old bus driver after a passenger died when a KMB bus flipped onto its side in Taiwai last night. Eleven passengers were injured in the accident near the junction of Taipo Road and Chingsa Highway, two of whom are said to be in a serious condition. A 38-year-old man was declared dead at the scene with severe head injuries. The government has described as unacceptable the behaviour of three Cathay Pacific cargo pilots who've lost their jobs after flouting anti-Covid precautions during a layover in Germany. Cathay confirmed that the three no longer work for the airline. The infections prompted authorities to order about 130 crew into quarantine. Food Panda couriers who joined a strike at the weekend say they've reached an agreement with management to settle their differences. Worker representatives said the company had offered a very good package on issues including delivery fees, with changes to take place uh, by February. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. Not too bad at all. Good morning. You never face some chat with me. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type violence. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. morning to you welcome to a super sunny friday great to be back with you morning brew time with me phil whelan 11 10 today danny hicks will be with us for this week's bargain basement edition of sports and all at 11 40 in sports and all extra today and today only and motorsport expert tim huxley will be with us to tell you all the latest from the somewhat downscaled 68th macau grand prix for obvious reasons, it can't be the huge international affair that it has been before, but it's still three days of amazing brum brum. And after 12, we'll end the week with Marshy Movie Time. James Marsh will be bringing you the lowdown on the week in film, so join him and Danny on Facebook Live.
Don't you worry about a thing. Don't you worry about a thing. 